My subject tonight is praying under pressure. Most often when churches gather for the commemoration of Good Friday, the focus, rightly so, is on the crucifixion event itself, on either the trial or on the journey, on the torture by the Roman soldiers, on the decision to have Jesus crucified rather than Barabbas, or the words he spoke from the cross. I'm going to take the story back a little earlier than that, and I want to focus tonight on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it has something to say to all of us. Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back again, he found them sleeping. Because their eyes were heavy, they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Praying under pressure. The word Gethsemane literally means oil press. It's where olives were crushed to produce oil. This place was found at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Ever had places or seasons in your life where you felt crushed? Pressed in on all sides. He comes to this scene with three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Troubled and deeply distressed, the Bible says. All of the pain and suffering he would feel. It began with the most difficult suffering of all the suffering from within. All that he was going to experience throughout the entire crucifixion event began with this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was from deep within his soul. He prayed that the hour would pass, that it would not come. I want to be clear about something. I've heard a lot of teaching over my years in the church. I want to be clear. There is absolutely nothing wrong with asking God to remove pain from your life. Hard times is not something we seek. Hard times is not something that demonstrates how how awesome you are or how strong you are. And looking at hard times, looking at things that cause pain, is not a sign of strength or faith, 
denying it is the sign of pride. And that's a different message. It's okay to pray that these things get removed. Because sooner or later, you are going to face a Gethsemane moment in your life. Times where you feel you're being crushed or being broken or just having so many things change within your life that you really don't understand what's going on. Times that if we're honest, which is always the big if, honest with ourselves, not only are they difficult times or challenging times, but as was the case here, times you see coming. First and foremost, and I've always believed this, the only way to deal with hard times, the only way to address difficult times is to acknowledge them. Denying that there is no problem when there is a problem is not a sign of faith. It's a sign of foolishness. We all have or will have Gethsemane moments in our lives. Now, some would look at one another and say, but my Gethsemane was so much, so much more painful than your Gethsemane moment. And none of our Gethsemane moments, uh, moments compared to the one that Jesus underwent. But this isn't about comparing. This isn't about putting our moments of distress on a scale. If it's a moment for you, that's what matters. And in those moments, we too will have a question. And hopefully those moments will bring us to a place of prayer. God will meet you there if we let him. I want us to see tonight and learn from the master how we can handle these Gethsemane-like experiences in our lives. I want to make three points tonight. Because every Bible school you could ever go to says a good sermon has three points. I want to talk about the experience of his pain. Then I want to talk about the experience of his prayer. And then the experience of his power. Again, the setting. This is the evening before the crucifixion. Jesus had just finished a Passover meal with his 12 disciples. And in that Passover meal, it's identified that Judas would be the one who would betray him. And then Jesus, as we compare the other Gospels, takes takes all of the 11 that are remaining to the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane, but three disciples, Peter, James, and John, go further. They come into the garden with him. And then there comes a point as they enter the garden that Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, y'all wait here. That's my paraphrase. You're not going to find anywhere in Greek or Hebrew the word y'all. But they were to wait here, yet be close enough that they could watch and experience and take in all of what Jesus was going to be doing. So I want to begin with the experience of his pain. Listen to the words that the gospel writer Mark says about the experience. He was troubled and very distressed, verse 33 says. Distress literally means visibly unsettled or bothered. Sorrow, sorrow you can't hide. Troubled, emotionally distraught when you're in pain, exceedingly sorrowful, surrounded by sorrow. Am I painting an accurate picture? And it says to the point of death, the emotional stress was so great that Luke records that he sweat drops of blood 
which is an actual medical condition. What was the main cause of this pain? What was the main motivating or contributing factor to what Jesus was experiencing in this garden? I first want to discuss what it was not. It was not Jesus' fear of dying. It was not his fear of failing. It was not his fear of the 11 running away. He knew that was going to happen anyway. It was not about the injustices he was about to experience. It was not about the humiliation of the beatings themselves. Not the loneliness of feeling uncared for. And pain can create all of those feelings. Now, all of those things were factors. All of those things were real. But they were secondary. The main source with this sacrifice is that Jesus was becoming in the crucifixion for you and me. He was becoming sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pure holiness becoming sin. Not just coming into contact with sin, not just having it within my sphere of influence, not just having it come anywhere near me. He would become sin. It would enter his very being. The first and only time in his entire existence, he would understand being forsaken. Wrath and anger would be poured out on him. And he did all of this. He suffered all of this for you and me. For you and me. Have you ever felt pain that came from another source? I think all of us have. In anticipation of that awful day, the hour of his agony, death, and separation from the Godhead, he does what I think should be the only logical and sensible thing to do. He turns to his heavenly father. It amazes me how so many Christians I know, they will go throughout their entire Christian walk and they will come close to the Lord. They will enjoy fellowship with him, but in their most dire times won't seek him. The place we need to be when those moments come is to run to the feet of the cross and bow before our Heavenly Father. Which leads from the experience of his pain to my second point. The experience of his prayer. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 read, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. In this moment of great pain, in this moment of unparalleled suffering, in this moment of immense distress, how did Jesus pray? Well, first he prayed as a child to a loving father. In verse 36, it says, it records, he cried out, Abba, Father. Conveyed, those words convey tenderness. They convey goodness. They convey a closeness. He wasn't coming into the presence of God and pulling out a prayer book and saying, Oh, Heavenly Father, oh, great King of the universe. He was saying, Daddy, what's going on here? When we are in our Gethsemane moments, no matter what they are, something that relates to physical pain, something that relates to emotional pain, something that creates this sense of isolation in us, some experience of injustice, whatever it might be, 
We need to pray as a child prays to a loving father, which means we acknowledge that we have a loving heavenly father. No situation in my life, no consequence that can come against me or involve me in any way, shape, or form can ever change the reality that my Jesus loves me, that my heavenly father loves and cares for me. Nothing can ever change that. He prayed as a child prays to a loving father. Next, he prayed as a child prays to a powerful father. He said, all things are possible. That's a difficult thing to wrap our minds around and to truly embrace when we think all things are falling apart. That's a huge thing for us to really grasp, that even in the midst where we feel so weak and so unable, all things are possible. Now, you may not agree with the next few things I say, but that's the one part of being a pastor I get to say, too bad. I'm going to say them anyway. Was it possible for that cup to be removed? Yeah, it was. Because we know that Jesus chose to go to the cross. And we devalue the choice by saying it wasn't a choice. If you'd like to, just like I mentioned on Sunday about something else, if you'd like to discuss this with me theologically, make an appointment. Was it possible for Jesus to refuse this cup? I believe yes. Otherwise, it's not a choice. Was it possible for me to say no to God about becoming a minister? Yes, I did it for 13 years. I told God, you're crazy. And he just listened to my calling him crazy and kept nagging me for 13 years. Lovingly, but he wouldn't go away. So were these things possible? I believe they were. What wasn't possible is for the cup to be removed and still have redemption be accomplished for you and me. The atonement for our sins required this path. God's plan came before Jesus' pain. And that's true in our lives as well. God's plan in your life is often going to require difficulty. If you've never experienced difficulty, you haven't lived as a Christian long enough. So let me give you some encouraging advice about the future of your Christian walk. There are some interesting days ahead. God's plan for your life will often require difficulty. Things can be removed, but then his ultimate purpose, his design, his plan for your life won't reach its full accomplishment. His cup, becoming sin, forsaken by God, a broken relationship with his heavenly father. There was no other way to achieve redemption for you and me than this path. So he prayed, he made his request known, then ended it the way all of us need to, as obedient Christians, need to end our prayers. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So what's your cup? What's your divinely ordained trial that you come to Jesus and you say, I've had enough of this? Now, I want to distinguish between a divinely ordained trial and a mess you got yourself into. 
they are very different. A mess you got yourself into is a mess you got yourself into. But a divinely ordained trial, could it be removed? Yeah, it could. Can you walk away from it? In part. But then you will not be able to accomplish the purposes that God has for you in your life. And I would add to that. That's the only way you're truly going to know joy. The joy the Bible talks about. That's the only way we're going to be able to still glorify God with our lives. He prayed as a child does to a loving and powerful father. And then he also prayed as an obedient son prays to an all-wise father. You know, God knows what he's doing. I need an amen to that. God knows what he's doing. I shouldn't have to convince Christians that God knows what he's doing. I can understand when the world looks at different things happening in their lives and they see and they wonder, God, what are you doing? But when Christians who have given their lives to God, who have seen his hand demonstrated over and over again how he's protected them and anointed them and washed them and given them wonderful days, I, there is nothing that can happen in my life that will have me question, God, you don't know what you're doing. Now, I will freely often admit, I don't know what you're doing. Oftentimes, I have no clue what he's doing. But God knows what he's doing. His prayer ended with, God, you are in charge. His prayer ended with, God, I belong to you. His prayer ended with, God, you order my steps. So wherever they go, that's where I need to follow. He struggled in the garden. He agonized in the garden. He was tempted in the garden. And yet, he yielded to his father's will in the garden. Whenever I work a retreat, and usually retreats begin with a number of weeks of preparation by the leaders of that retreat, and I get together with the other team members, I always ask the question at the initial meeting, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you part of this retreat effort? Why are you here for this effort or this event, or this conference, or whatever it is. Why are you here? It's a good question to ask ourselves each and every day. Are we here just because we like the retreats and they're fun and I get blessed by them? Or am I truly here just to do the Father's will? Am I here to follow his plan for my life? Whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. I've shared openly with this church about some of the health issues I have faced recently and how God has truly touched my life. And thank God I really don't have any of those health issues the same like I did before. God has been good to me. But before I actually got diagnosed with what the issues were and before I was able to understand what the plan should be to reduce my blood sugar and that it didn't involve slushies and smoothies and all these kind of other things, probably a reason why I never went to medical school, <laughs> I had agreed to be a spiritual advisor on two different retreats and the weekends would be back to back. And one of the things that was one of the symptoms of my condition was just this chronic fatigue. 
I was just way, way tired all, all the time. And I often said to the Lord, I can't do this. It's just too much work. It's just too much effort. Even when I wasn't actually speaking just as a minister, sometimes the issue of just presence and being there for people. And God would come to me and say, but I'm not asking you to do it in your strength. I'm asking you to do it in mine. And I just looked at him in what should have been an eloquent and touching moment. And I went, okay. You sure I can't drop one of these retreats? Okay. Because we follow him, whatever the cost. Romans chapter 12, verse number, beginning of verse number 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Now, most of you know me. I want to balance this. Being willing to be a willing sacrifice doesn't mean I run myself into the ground and I say yes to everything because not everything is what God wants me to say yes to. There were many things over the course of the last couple of months I've said no to. We are here, though, to prove and demonstrate what the will of God is and that the will of God is good in our lives. It is good, it is acceptable, and in the final analysis, it is perfect. There is no better plan for my life than the plan that comes in line with the will of God. Present yourselves, it says. That that word in Greek literally means unconditional surrender. No holding back. So that's why we do what we do. And again, I want to be clear. God has called us to care for others. He's also called you to care for you. Because if you don't care for you, there's nothing left to care for others. That's, again, another message. I don't want to get off on a sidetrack tonight. We've talked about the experience of his pain and the experience of his prayer. But I can't end this without talking about the experience of his power. He prays, comes back. Now... People can read what they want, but he brought the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, into the garden with him. It was for their benefit, yes. That is clear from looking at the other Gospels. But I can't step away from how that scene is portrayed and not think it was also that Jesus wanted people there. Because what you and I hopefully have experienced throughout our lives is that when we are going through those dire moments, those difficult seasons, the last thing we need to be is alone. We need other believers. We need other people. I will always proclaim from any pulpit I am ever standing behind, I need God's people. I need the church. As challenging as people can be sometimes. Now, I know none of you have ever experienced challenging people within God's house. So you can use this message for other people. But he brings them into the garden and and leaves them at a place where they can still see him. And they can still experience what he's going through. And then he prays and he comes back. 
and they're asleep. That must have been a real awkward moment. He's pouring his heart out, and he wants them to experience this and see him doing it so they'll at least understand where he is. And yet they've fallen asleep. And he just, just gives this, this, this thing. This, it just seems so incredulous to me. So he goes back and prays again and tells them, watch. And he comes back and they're asleep again. And it says this happened a third time. Let's be honest tonight. How many of you after the second time would have told those three to get out of here? Would have told them to walk? Would have told them, listen, I don't need any of you. Just take yourselves and get out of my sight. I know you're all too spiritual for that. But he came back and found them sleeping a third time. And there is nothing recorded anywhere in the scriptures or even in the writings of the early church that would suggest he rebuked them for it. He wasn't pleased with it, but even in them failing him a third time, they were there. Face it. Your power, your strength is not shown in what or whom you can just uh, defeat or overcome. Oftentimes, your power or your strength is shown in what you can endure, what you can put up with. Many times in how well you deal with the weaknesses of other people. I've often heard so many preachers say, I don't want any weak people around me. Well, then what are the people who see weakness in you? What do they do? Because all of us have weakness in us. What strength, what courage, what resolve that Jesus showed. Where did this strength come from? Well, Luke chapter 22 adds something to what the story shows in verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. A moment ago, he is emotionally in distress and collapsed. The father did not take the cup away. He gave him something much more valuable, something much more meaningful than the cup being taken away. God gave his son the strength to overcome the moment. And whatever you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, it would be wonderful if God took away every source of pain, every issue in our lives. But he gives us something much more important, much more valuable, especially to the rest of the body of Christ and the rest of the world, than the pain being taken away is that you can have a testimony that says, God brought me through. God may not take your cup away, but he will provide you with everything you need to drink it. Now, why an angel? So this is where I get to practice my favorite three words. I don't know. I don't know why an angel. I do not know what your Gethsemane moment will be like or when it will be. But I do know that your Gethsemane moment, moment, there will be provision from your Heavenly Father. And he will be there and his presence will be there. So do not fear. Uh, Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous 
right hand. Isaiah 43, beginning in verse number one. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. We're going to go through stuff, but with Jesus, the stuff doesn't have to go through us. Why does God allow you and I to experience Gethsemane moments in our lives? A couple of reasons. So that you can know and cherish his presence and his comfort. So we can be passionate about his presence. His presence is not just something that's nice. His presence is something I need each and every day. So we can witness to others and show them in their Gethsemane moments without comparing their moments to ours and saying, you know, I've been through worse stuff than this. No, (laughs) knock it off. You're not the standard anyway. But we can witness to them because if it's strong enough to them, then it's a temptation for them to fall away. And we experience these Gethsemane moments so that we can bring his name glory. Every Gethsemane moment, I can tell you, is in the past. Every Gethsemane moment that was sent by the enemy or by others in my life to destroy me has not because Jesus is still Lord of my life. There is nothing that the enemy has ever tried to do that will work. And I want to encourage you today, there is nothing that the enemy can do to you that will ever get in the way of Jesus' power giving you the ability to overcome. Your Gethsemane will have another name. This was the actual name for a garden. Your Gethsemane moment might have a name of a place as it reminds you of something. It may be another location, another city, another state. I used to think before I got older, when I was much younger and a lot more foolish, Gethsemane for me, I would change the word Gethsemane and put the word Roller coasters. Because to me, those things were evil. And I helped the Lord take them, that cup from me because I didn't get on them. But when you talk about real moments in your life, real things, family situations, work situations, health situations, different relationships in your life, those become moments of Gethsemane where you feel crushed. And you feel broken and you don't understand what's going on. But you know somebody who does. You know someone who does. It may be something that you're facing right now. Illness. The loss of a loved one. Failure. Either in your life or in someone else's. But God wants you and me to see Gethsemane. The one that Jesus went through. And remember that it was Gethsemane where pain and questions were transformed into our redemption. They were transformed into the salvation that you and I hold so dear and know is so sweet today. And that happened through prayer and the presence of God. 
this entire scene began with the Passover meal. And that's why we celebrate Holy Communion, especially on Good Friday.